everybody. You guys doing okay? Awesome. Hey, um, it's getting warm out there outside. Summer is right here. And every time we get to this point in, of the year, I think back to some of the summers I had as a, as a, as a, as a teenager. And we're going to take our youth to student life camp this year, which will be in North Carolina. And one of the ways when I was a teenager that we would uh, make enough money to go to camp was by doing some odds and end jobs for people in our church. Well, my dad one year hired a bunch of us to move a lot of dirt in our backyard in Panama City because we basically lived in a wetland, okay? So we were moving all this dirt, and it took forever. I mean, just absolutely forever, and it was hot. And at, we were just we would jump in the pool more times than we would move dirt. And, and to this day, I think that over there next to where this dirt pile was, it's still kind of lumpy because we never end up getting it all moved. But he gave us enough money so we could help a bunch of people, so five or six youth group, so we could go to camp. Well, on about day three of moving all this dirt around with shovels and wheelbarrows, we came upon a discovery. It was five or six little raccoon pups. And they looked super cute. Even us teenage boys were like, those are cute, okay? And you, you lose points for saying cute as a teenage boy, right? And so we're like, oh, this is awesome. So what do you want to do when you see something cute and furry? You want to pick it up or play with it, you know? Well, I was always the voice of reason. And if you know me, that's kind of scary with my group of friends, Okay. And one of my cousins was like, hey, let's go play with these things. I was like, I don't know. I think those things might get a little violent. He's like, nah, man, it's fine. And so he reaches down, and with a glove he had taken off of his hand, a work glove, he goes to touch these things, and they went full gremlin. <laughs> I mean, hissing. They went from cute to just dangerous like that. And we call the animal, animal control, like, hey, come get these things. We are very much afraid. They're like, you didn't touch them, did you? Like, no, no, we wouldn't have dared tried that. <laughs> Never. We had underestimated the sheer power and ferocity of little tiny raccoons. Now, I'd like you to think about something. Quite often, we in the church underestimate the power of the gospel. Now, first off, let's make sure we understand that word, that word gospel. Just, it's important to understand it means good news. It's always used in relationship to what Christ has done. Now, we use it in different ways all the time. We use it as, that's the gospel truth, or you might use it as for gospel music, or you might say any number of ways, that's gospel right there. What the Bible uses when it uses the word gospel is the story, the 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 work, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's good news because his life, his perfect life, can be in, his righteousness can be imputed to us. His death is for, for the sins of those who have believed so those sins might be covered. And so that is the good news, that there's a righteousness available apart from you doing everything right because you will never do anything right or everything right. You will always stand guilty, but there is righteousness that's available by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we mean by when we say the word gospel. And sometimes we underestimate the power of the gospel, especially in times when the church, it seems like we're marginalized in society, which is basically now. Nobody will let us have an opinion about anything. They'll scream and yell at us and not let us have a reasoned argument back. So when we feel marginalized or when it seems like our numbers are dwindling or when it looks like we're, being, we're having some trouble because we believe the gospel we start to underestimate the power of the good news of Christ. And you know what happens? This temptation amongst church leaders goes, say, well, obviously the problem is with the gospel. So what will end up happening is compromise. Well, we'll stop talking about sin, and we'll stop talking about the holiness of God and we'll stop, we'll stop with the offense of the cross and that he died so he could bear sins. And, and sin is so heinous that it would send the Son of God to the cross. We'll, we'll kind of dial that back down. And when that happens, historically, the church has 
jettisoned its belief in Orthodox Christianity. It's jettisoned its belief in the Bible. And it's getting to this place where it becomes weak and inefficient. Not just inefficient, but powerless. And I want you to know something. Do not underestimate the power of the gospel. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 9, a man named Saul, who would become Paul, and, and we're going to look at this to see the power of the gospel so that we would not esteem it as something that is, is, is not that important. It's the crucial thing, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and what that means and the way we can come into that. That right there is the core and crux of Christianity. It's the core and crux of the faith. It's the core and crux of this church, and we want to see what it does in our lives. And look in verse Acts chapter, this is Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 20. Now, I want you to buckle up for a second because we're going to read a bunch, okay? But we're going to hopefully read in a way that I don't sound like Charlie Brown's teacher. You remember Charlie Brown's teacher? Wah, 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 wah. Because it's very important. If you get nothing else, I want you to hear the text because this is God's very word given through, the, given through Luke. And so we see in verse 9, it says this, but Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, and he went to the high priest. So this guy saw, if we look back at chapter 8, he was present and clapping for the execution of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. In fact, he was looking on approvingly, and people were laying their coats around so they could get a little reared back and throw the stones and kill Stephen for just preaching the good news and preaching the gospel of Jesus. They killed him. Paul standing there approving. Then we pick up in, verse nine, in chapter 9, verse 1, it says he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This guy is not a very pleasant person. You would not describe, if you were to describe somebody that you like, you probably wouldn't start off with, man, they're just great. They just breathe threats and death all the time. Would you do that? No. If you do, you might need some new company, okay? And so they said, Paul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, and now he wants to make his threats and murder legal. So what happens is he went to the high priest, the one in charge in Jerusalem, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues, the places of worship, in Damascus. And so that, it, that if he found anyone belonging to the way, talking about Christianity, that gets its idea, the way here, gets its idea from Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. And so they started calling Christianity the way. And so we see that, that he, he says he wants to get these letters so that if he finds anybody belonging to, Christ, to, a, to Christianity, anybody belonging to the way, anybody who's believing in Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He gets a warrant to arrest people. And we see in verse 3, something unexpected happens. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven, where's the light from? Heaven, that's important. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, notice something real quick. Who is he actually trying to kill and persecute? Believers. Here's something that you need to know. When you're in Christ, when you, we are persecuted on his behalf, it is as if they're persecuting Jesus himself. He is with us in those situations. Do you know that? That is the greatness of our God. That the reason we are being persecuted is because of our faith in him, because we are not of this world anymore, the book of John would say, but also that he was saying, why are you persecuting me? It's, like, it's kind of like this. You pick on... A, a kid, it's like, you go back to grade school and this kid is getting picked on. And what, it, what sometimes happens is the kid goes, I'm going to get my big brother. And the bully's like, go ahead. And then he go gets his big brother and he's like, sign up to go play football at University of Tennessee. Okay? Ooh, okay, <laughs> I've made an awful mistake. Okay? That's what it's like for the church to be picked on. You got to watch out for our big brother. And so we see this. He says, Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He recognizes that this is obviously God. And then we see in verse 5, and he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who are traveling with him stood speechless. 
And here's why they stood speechless. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Now, Paul saw the light, and he hit the ground. The rest of them just heard a voice, a disembodied voice from heaven, obviously with authority, and they saw their friend they were walking with hit the ground and start talking. I think I would have stood there speechless too, right? And so he says, and, and they're speechless, and notice this, and this is important if you're, if you're reading the text. They hear the voice, but they saw no one. And Saul rose from the ground, although his eyes were open. This is important. This is a weird way to say it. Although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. There's emphasis on the fact that he's blind. And then, so they led him by the hand, and they brought him to Damascus, the place he was going. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, don't underestimate how bad it would be to be three days without sight, first off. Especially if you go from seeing one day to not being able to see the other day. He can't get to this place. They, he's relying on these friends to get him where he's going. He's, li- he's living in this place. He neither ate nor drank. It's possible, it's possible that he didn't, neither ate nor drank because he couldn't get to any food or water because he cannot see. But more likely, it has to do with prayer. And so this guy was going to persecute Christians, and then he meets Jesus on the road. He falls blind. His whole plans are derailed, and he ends up sitting in some room in Damascus, blind and hungry. Now God, in verse 10, another guy comes on the scene, and there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord, because that's what you say when God talks to you, okay? Here I am, Lord. Look in the Bible. It happens all the time. Here I am, Lord, okay? If, he ta- if, if you were actually hear that, let me help you. Here I am, Lord, okay? And so we sit in verse 11, and the Lord said to him, rise, go to the street called Straight, or Straight Street, if you will, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying, Now, Ananias is going to have a few issues with this in verse 12, and it says, And he was seen in a vision, a man named Ananias, come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain sight. Verse 13, but Ananias answered. Um, And you could almost hear the trepidation in his voice and the are you kidding me in his voice. Lord, I have heard from many about this guy. He's not very pleasant, remember? He was there when Stephen was killed, and he was, like, giving them a round of applause, and he's going around breathing threats and murder at all these people, and now he has been commissioned to go and arrest Christians. And verse 13, he says, Lord, I've heard about this guy, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. This would be tantamount in our culture of this day to God coming to you, coming to Kevin and saying, Kevin, I want you to go down and I want you to go and witness to or or share the gospel with a man who is in a hotel who is actively an Islamic terrorist. I want you to go there and be cool with it. Anybody going, that sounds like fun, right? Maybe we'll make bombs together, okay? No. This is, this is supremely frightening because this guy has a badge too. And he's like, Lord, are you sure? In verse 15, it's not, a lot of times we read the Bible so woodenly and we don't realize that these were people. And he's going to exercise faith, but it's going to be a first like, hey, um, time out. I've heard about what the evil this guy has done, that he kills Christians, and that he has authority to arrest them. You want me to go see who now? In verse 14, it says, and in and, and verse 15, it says, but the Lord said to, said to him, go. Why? That's an imperative. It's, an, it's a command. Go, and he gives a reason why. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the children of Israel. For I shall... For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He's going to take a person who is a terrorist against Christians and make him the greatest, one of the greatest missionaries of all time. And so he says, Ananias, you go, you listen to me, you do what I've commanded you to do. I know it seems insane, but go. 
I have much for this man. I have chosen him out to do my work and to take the gospel to the Gentiles, those outside of the people of Israel, to kings, and he will witness and share the gospel before kings, and then to the children of Israel. He is going to take the gospel all over the known world. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house. That may be just, that's a profound sentence. Okay, (laughs) you said it. I'm afraid of this guy, but I'm going to go. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, believing Jesus here, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, taking food, and he was strengthened. Now, verse 20, the end of verse 19 and the the verse 20 are very profound and shows the great change that's happened. Look at the end of verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, the very ones he was going to arrest and kill. Now he is with them. Verse 20, and immediately. Now, the last time you saw this word immediately was previous in the passage when immediately a light shone from heaven, right? Then what happens after this? Immediately, after he is with the disciples, what does he go do? He goes and he preaches, proclaims Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. So within 20 short verses and just a few days... This guy goes from, I'm going to kill everyone who follows this man as the Christ, to preaching Christ. He goes from terrorist to evangelist. He goes from hating all things related to Christ and Christianity to being the apostle who will take the gospel to the known world at the time. That's huge, right? That is huge. I mean, just astronomically huge. How many of you know people that, like, change is difficult? How many people you know that have actually changed? Well, if you're sitting here, you probably know a bunch of them. But changing in your own power doesn't usually happen. Don't believe me? Think about New Year's resolutions. How many of you still keeping those? I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna eat right and exercise. Mm-hmm. I said that too. Mm-hmm. I just got the willpower. How's that working out for you? <sighs> I, I am going to have less rage when I drive. Oh yeah, you still driving to Nashville? Probably not happening. Okay. Get this. This is something, a supernatural change that the gospel can bring. So do not underestimate this gospel. And I want you to get this. Don't underestimate the gospel's power to save and to change. This guy, once the conversion happens, his name goes from Saul to Paul, and he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit most of the New Testament. And he says this profound verse in the book of Romans, chapter 1. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is great power in the gospel. It can take a person who is dead in their sins and through the power of the Holy Spirit make them alive to God. It could take a person who is indifferent to the things of God or maybe even antagonistic to the things of God or bored with the things of God and take them to a person who passionately seeks God and his word. You take somebody who loves sin and folly and to someone who still sins and, and, is, and is involved in folly but is the one who's constantly repenting of it. It can change your world. It can change everything about you. That is what we see here. We have testimony through it without, throughout the scriptures, but we see it really clearly in this one that God's going to call out for a great purpose. And so I want you to understand something today. And this is the main, I have just two, two ways I don't want you to underestimate the gospel. First off, don't underestimate the gospel's power to save and change. If you would, look at the fact that the gospel can change your sight. Look in verse 3. Remember, now he went on his way as he approached Damascus. We're going back and looking at this. 
Paul was on his way to persecute Christians, and what happens? And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. Where was the light from? Heaven. Do you know what Jesus would say several times? One time in particular, he said, I am the light of the world. You remember that? John chapter 8. Also, we have John 3.16. You know what? You've probably seen it at like sporting events recently, um, right? You know, we all know that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But did you know something? There's a whole lot more verses in John chapter 3. Go figure, right? Okay? <laughs> Isn't that wild? And so we get to verse 17, and it says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved through him. And then in verse 18, it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the one and only Son of God. Verse 19 says, and this is the judgment. Notice this. Remember, this light shines, and then he's going to be blind. Light and darkness images happen all throughout the Bible, and it's in relationship. Light has the idea of knowing, seeing Jesus for all who he is, and darkness is seeing sin as greater. We see this in verse 19, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world. Remember, Jesus would say in John, I am the light of the world. So this is the judgment that light has come into the world, namely Jesus, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And they preferred the cover of darkness to do the deeds didn't want the light, the spotlight to shine to show them what they are. In verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things and hates the light does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And I want you to get this. The light shone from heaven as a way to illuminate and show that Paul is in, walking in blindness, though he can see with his eyes physically there's darkness all around and he is coming here, this, sh- this display of light from heaven is an illumination showing Paul who Jesus is. You've probably heard that old, that old, have you that, that old story about getting, being in a, a bunch of people in a completely dark room and they're feeling this elephant. They don't know it's an elephant. And then every one of them would describe a different thing about it. That's how all of us are apart from the illumination of the scriptures and the illumination of our heart and God's word. We're groping around trying to figure out things and usually preferring the darkness rather than the light. We're trying to figure out who God is, but we don't understand completely until there's this illumination of light coming. And so what happens to Paul is that he, though he could see physically, he was blind spiritually and a light shone and sent him to his knees. And when that happens... He gets a revelation of who Jesus is. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He realizes something, that he is in some trouble. And in verse 5, he says this, Who are you, Lord? He thought he was doing God's work by persecuting Christian faith, but all of a sudden, his, his eyes, though he could see physically, he had to be struck blind so he could see spiritually. Jesus shows who he is. This is the light coming from heaven. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul was struck, he was struck blind so that he could see who Jesus is, that he is Lord. We don't like anybody, I'm going to put it this way, let me change change the we to me. I don't like people to tell me what to do. I'm a contrarian by nature. You tell me what to do. My mom and dad are sitting here. Teenage years were fun. I'm sure they love that. They got a grandkid out of it now, so they're cool. They didn't strangle me. (laughs) You you tell me to do something, I'm like, "Uh uh-uh. No, 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 I do my thing my way. And that's just, I think that's human nature. It's the broken part of our human nature. And this guy thought he was following the God of the Old Testament because he was a practicing Jew and he was trying to snuff out this Christianity. And what happens is Jesus reveals who he is to Paul through this great show of light. 
and he sees Jesus for who he is as Lord. He could not do that before. Now, note this. Paul was present when Stephen preached the good news about Jesus being Lord, right? So he'd heard it, but he didn't believe it. It didn't open his eyes. He, he heard that, and he saw this man's believing this. He saw Stephen believing and holding fast to this truth unto death, and they killed him, and he still didn't hear. He still didn't have eyes to see who Jesus was because he was in darkness, He had heard, but he was still walking in darkness. And then God intervenes, and the light comes, and he realizes something. There is a Lord that is talking to me right now, and he says, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So I want you to understand something, that the gospel, the good news, don't underestimate the gospel because it has the power to save and change, and it can change your sight. You can see something that has been there all along, but you've been blind to it. Do you remember, um, you remember The Wizard of Oz? You ever seen that? Yeah, we watched that the other night. It's kind of a freaky movie still. My little boy was like, I don't know about that witch, okay? Ah, get your dog, okay, you know? Flying monkeys, that didn't hold up very well as a special effect, by the way. That didn't work, but some of them did. Do you remember what happens? They're in Kansas, and they move the, the storm happens, and then she walks out the door, and all of a sudden, technicolor happens. And it's still pretty astounding now to see those colors, even though that movie is very old. And I want, Paul was very well trained in the scriptures, in the Old Testament scriptures, and he could not see Jesus in them before Jesus struck him and showed, him, showed who he was to Paul on his way. And then after that, Paul would say things. After he's come to Jesus, he would say things. I count everything as garbage, rubbish, compared to knowing Christ. He would say stuff like, after he came to this faith and saw who Jesus was, he would say, like, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I count all things as loss for the sake of knowing him. He would say wild things all the time about this. And so what, what really happens here is he's living in this black and white world where he knows the facts, but now it's like technicolor, and he sees clearly after his blindness is over who Jesus is, and he sees him as absolutely glorious. And so I want you to just hear me on this, church. If you are indifferent to Jesus, or you just see him in black and white terms, and you do not see him as this great savior for all who he is, as this great, as this great and mighty, incomparably glorious God in the flesh, you are like Paul and blind to who he is because Jesus, the, Jesus changes our sight. We, see, we go from seeing this caricature, this picture of Jesus, maybe that Jesus you've seen on church walls, but it comes, becomes technicolor and real in our life, and he shows us who he is, and he's no longer just some abstract religious principle, but he's a person, and he's a person by which is all-consuming to our life. This is, sometimes it feels hard to talk about these things because it's like trying to describe something, to some, trying to describe a beautiful image, a sunset to somebody who's never seen before. It's really hard to do that. So note that, that don't underestimate the gospel because it can change your sight. It can change what you think about Jesus. And that is actually the major question, who he is and how great he is. If you can't see it, you are in danger of the wrath of God. Secondly, I want you to see this. Showing this light shows the severity of spiritual blindness and darkness. Look down, go on with me. Remember he says, verse 7, Verse 6, it says, remember he's falling on the ground. Paul's on the ground. He's blind. And Jesus talked to him and said, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. Verse 6 comes around, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And so what happens? Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. The way that verse is constructed, his eyes were open and saw nothing, is, is supposed to emphasize the fact that this man is totally and utterly blind. What did it take for him to see the blindness? The appearance of Jesus. 
the light that shone from heaven, okay, which, which we see as uh, obviously in connection with these other passages, the truth of God, the glory of God shines before him, and it struck him blind. And why was he blind? So he could see. That makes no sense, right? There was a guy who recently passed away that I knew in my former church. His name was Michael, and he was blind, physically blind. I had never heard the story of why he was blind until we were in a discipleship group together. I'm going to tell you something. When he told me the story, you're, I'm going full like, <laughs> I mean, because it was like amazing testimony to Jesus because Michael lived his own way. At one point in his life, he was a Chip and Dale dancer. And I was like, wow, I did not see that coming, okay? That's part of the testimony. You're like, holy shnikes, okay? All right. <laughs> so he told that one. And then he talks about how far he was from God and how he did not care about the things of God. And he liked the lifestyle that was afforded to him by being a male stripper. I was like, wow, this is, you keep saying that. And I keep hearing you say that. That's a wild story. And then he was in his 20s and he got in a car accident and he was blinded from the car accident. And I will never forget what he said. God made me blind so I could see. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, your life is tough because you can't see. And I saw the things he had to go through. He had all these, you know, to type on the computer was difficult. He had to use these things. He, he still hunted, asked me to go with him one time. He said, you hold the gun, I pull the trigger. I was like, no, I love you, No. Am I making this up, Mom? No, that happened, okay? I just wanted to make sure, like, that's a lie. That's a preacher's story. No, that happened, okay? He was blind, but he credited his blindness physically to the fact that he gained spiritual sight because it was through that that God showed him the greatness of his spiritual darkness. And Paul sees, he says, who, Lord, who, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And he's, oh, I have, my life is a wreck. I am blind. And so this, this, this physical blindness is meant to show us the nature of, of, of how bad it is to be spiritually blind, That spiritual blindness, living in spiritual darkness, separates us from God. It makes us unable to see who Jesus is. It makes us unable to see how dark we actually are. And it's actually a grace of God for him to come and through the scriptures and through other things to show us that we are in sin and we are in need of spiritual sight, which is miraculous. Now, I want you to know something else. At the end of this passage, what happens? The scales fall off, right? Michael, my friend, was blind. There was not much he could do about that. I mean, nothing. He didn't have eyes. And the people who are blind, you'd think if they could do something about it, they would. But it's, it's impossible on, out of our own devices to make that happen. Hear me. Any person who gains spiritual sight after formerly, after formerly being blind, which we all are apart from Christ, it's a miracle that is only something God can do. We cannot will ourselves to have sight. It must be revealed. Look in verse 7, if you will. This is also very important, just to reiterate that point, that you need a miracle to be able to see sight. You need a God miracle. In verse 7, it says, and the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Remember, Paul saw the light. They didn't see the light, right? They heard the voices, but they can't see what he's seeing, the light that he is seeing. So they're dumbfounded, speechless. Then what does it say? they hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. They, the people with Paul, heard who Jesus was, but they were unable to see. Why? Because spiritual sight can only be restored by the miracle of God. We can only believe. We can only turn to Christ if he illuminates our eyes to see him for all who he is. Do you hear me? 
That's why grace is so amazing. Because we're undeserving and incapable of coming to God on our own. But we see this in conversion. You see it in other places in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, talking about how dead we were in our sins, that it's a miraculous event. It's the work of God. Not only that, it changes your sight so that you realize you're blind, you realize who Jesus is, but also it does this. It's a miraculous work. The gospel also does this. It changes your aim in life. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. What's he doing? Verse 1 says, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord and went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that he might, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now he was on his way. He approached Damascus and suddenly the light from heaven hit. So what is he going? He's going to persecute those who believe Christ. They're going to persecute those who believe the gospel. And what happens? His whole life changes in a few days. Because in verse 20, after he receives his sight again, what happens? He's preaching the gospel everywhere. He went to try, from killing to preaching because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done. That is wild, and that is only the work of God. We've talked about this. How difficult is it for people to change? Well, on our own devices, it's nearly impossible. The, the show, The Biggest Loser, have you ever seen that show before? It's like the people that they, they have, they're, they're overweight, and they go on this show, and they lose like a ton of weight because they have these trainers that yell at them, okay? Like Jillian Michael's like, I'll kill you! Your problem is not with food, it's with people! Oh! And so they get on the treadmill, and they work out for like 20 hours a day, and they lose 175 pounds. Guess what? Most of the time, and this is sad, they gain it back. In fact, there's a story in the USA Today about one of the winners who went from like, and she was very heavy to like super buff, and now she's gained almost all of her weight back. Willpower can only get you so far, and it can't get you to God because it can't restore your spiritual sight. Why? Because blind people are blind unless something miraculous happens. Your willpower can only take you so far. And so this change that happens, this, his whole way of life is devoted to snuffing out Christianity. And it goes in just a matter of days and a matter of verses in this testament that we see him going from over here to try to snuff out Christianity to taking it to the world. How does, what is the deal with that? How does that even, how does that come into our mind? This is the, this is the nature of the gospel, that it changes us. It makes us new. It makes us alive. And it takes us and changes us. Paul would say this about, say this in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. The one who experiences conversion would say something like that, because he was no longer the same person. This happens all the time. We see this in Christianity. A guy by the name of C.S. Lewis, you may have heard of, was an avowed atheist. He began to have, he read, he read a guy by the name of G.K. Chesterton, and he, began, and he also began a friendship with a guy by the name of J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings thing, okay? So if you like Gollum and those things, you can thank J.R.R. You can also thank him for his witness to this man, because he went from an avowed atheist to one of the great defenders of the faith. And here is what he wrote about his conversion. I'd like to read it to you. This is C.S. Lewis talking. You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalene. It's a school. Night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. He's talking about Jesus. He so earnestly desired not to meet him. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me in the Trinity term of 1929. I gave in, and I admitted that God was God, and I knelt and I prayed, and perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. He did not want Christianity to be true. He did not want those Christian claims to be right, but the Lord wrestled his heart to the ground, and he believed. 
and his whole life changed. He went from a, a proponent of atheism to writing one of the perennial books that led so many to faith, Mere Christianity. And he read these, the things that are in Mere Christianity, he read it during this, over the radio. It actually appeared as a radio address in, during World War II as London was being bombed. The gospel went out all over the airwaves using this guy. There's so many other people I could talk to you about. You can go look them up. Um, St. Augustine in the, third century, in the third century who loved, he was, he was not a saint yet, okay? He was, uh, he was bound to love for a prostitute and was in lust. And he heard the gospel. He heard the good news, repented and believed and became one of the founders of the faith that helped us understand theology that we were saved by, by grace through faith and not by works, we see this again with a guy by the name of Peter Hitchens, who was an avowed atheist and even burnt a Bible when he was 15 years old at his boarding school. Okay, you get in trouble for burning Bibles, okay, in the, board, in the Christian boarding school he went to. And he actually became a believer and debated his brother. Okay, Pete is uh, this guy. This is his brother, for, brother Christian or Christopher Hitchens, who just died uh, not too long ago. And he, de- he debated his brother because his brother right here was a devout atheist. He wrote many atheistic books. And so his, these brothers were set at odds because of the gospel, and these change happened. And I want you to know something. You can see that the gospel can change your aim in life. And if your life has not changed, it's quite likely that you have never known the power and not known this gospel and you're still in your sin. The gospel changes people. You can see it, you can see it around this church. People that had nothing to do, like, I'm not really into this whole God thing. I'm not really into the scriptures. All of a sudden, people who were like that three, four, five, six, seven years ago are now here in Bible study seeking fellowship loving God's word, seeking it out. I can see it in my own life. I was a punk Baptist teenager. I was in church all the time, but did not care about the things of God. And he revealed himself to me through the scriptures and through preaching. And I saw him as incomparably glorious. And my life changed because of then. I used to not care about the things of God and church and worship. And now those things have become what I center my whole life around. And Christ has become the center, the center of my life. I want you to get this. Life change happens because of the gospel. That's why it's, that's one of the reasons why we can preach it to everybody every day, all day, no matter where you are, because I believe something could change you like that, because it's the power of God. It took an enemy to the preacher. Some of the greatest Christian apologists, some of the greatest Christian missionaries right now could be sitting in a mosque. Some of the greatest and, and they're going to meet Jesus, they're going to hear the gospel, meet Jesus, and they're going to follow him. Some of, some of the greatest in the years to come, some of the greatest evangelists, preachers, teachers in the world could be sitting in a crack house right now, completely consumed by their love for drugs and don't care about the things of God. God takes enemies and poppers and screw-ups and mess-ups and anything you want to call yourself. And he, by the power of his gospel, can make you a new creation and change the whole course of your life. It's seen in scripture. It's seen in church, church history testimonies. It's seen, I've seen it in this church. The gospel is powerful. Why would we ever try to neuter it of its power? Because it can change the world. Note this, don't underestimate the power of God using you to preach the gospel. I can't preach. That's your job, preacher. Nope. Actually, do you know who preached a bunch of the sermons leading up to this? Deacons and regular people. Go back and look, and regular people sitting in the pew, regular believers, not the holy believers, not the pastor believers, okay? A lot of the preaching in the book of Acts and a lot of the testimony in the book of Acts is from people who are not ordained ministers. Man, I just don't know enough. It doesn't matter what you know. First off, learn more, okay? There's no excuse. Secondly, don't let that be the case. 
don't, don't, don't let it, don't let it, your lack of knowledge or your lack of power, we don't have any power because the restoration of sight to the to spiritually blind is miraculous. But it does require the gospel you preach. How did Paul hear the gospel first before Jesus appeared to him? Stephen, a guy who died. He probably thought that was an awful sermon, right? Because if you guys tried to stone me after I left the sermon today and you tried to kill me, I'd be like, they didn't like that one, okay? It's worse than a lot of, like, bad Facebook posts, okay? Let's kill him! Stones, okay? He was probably thinking, that sermon, oh, i gotta, I got to change some illustrations next time, okay? <coughs> okay? Secondly, Ananias. He didn't even have to do much. He just had to obey and go. I want you to go here. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. Touched him, scales fell off. But what did God do through these two men and their seemingly, at the time, insignificant witness? Verse 15 says that he told that um, it says that for Ananias to go, why? For he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show you how much you must suffer for my namesake. He's saying, you go, I'm going to save them. He used these guys seemingly insignificant witnesses to save one of the greatest missionaries of all time. There's stories about this. There's not power in yourself. There's power in the gospel. So don't underestimate speaking the truth of the gospel, talking about Jesus. Don't underestimate it because God can use your tiny witness to save somebody in the kingdom who will do great things. You don't believe me? Just look at Scripture. There, sometimes we see people as too far gone too out of hand for us to reach. There was a lady by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. She was a tenured professor of English at Syracuse, and she was a militant lesbian. She began writing about and researching Christianity, um, especially the evangelical movement and promise keepers, and she wrote some some very um, disparaging articles about promise keepers in 1997. She got a lot of hate mail sadly, from believers. But there was one letter that showed up at her house from a a Reformed Presbyterian minister inviting her over for dinner. Now, you would not think that a Presbyterian minister and a militant lesbian would have a great meal. But they did, and over a series of years, he met with her and talked with her. And they started studying the Bible together. She was still, she was in a committed lesbian relationship, and she lived several years of her life with this friend who was a minister. Well, God began to work in her life, and she began to experience some great conviction. If you want to read about this, by the way, just search her name on Christianity Today. There's a great article about her. She began to feel convicted of her sins and started reading the book of Romans, and she asked a friend of hers at, one of the, at, a, at a meeting at her house who was a former Presbyterian minister who had now embraced the homosexual lifestyle, and he went to her and said, like, I could see God. This is some wild stuff. He went to her and said, like, Rosaria, I could see God working on, in your life, and I want to give you my commentaries on the book of Romans so you can read the book of Romans. You know who wrote the book of Romans, by the way? Paul, this one we're talking about. And he hands her this commentary on the book of Romans. And through that and talking with this pastor for so long, she got up one Sunday from the bed she was in with her partner, went to church, trusted Christ, now has been an advocate for helping people overcome same-sex attraction, and more importantly, not overcome it, but to trust Christ and to come out of that lifestyle. And she's been married to a Presbyterian minister, a male Presbyterian minister, for 15 years. Now, you think about this. That's impossible. No. That's the power of the gospel. It's not about you changing your behavior. Christ will change you when he makes you a new creation. It's about coming to him by faith. It's about his illumination of him showing you that 
what you saw was just this caricature of Christ becomes technicolor and you see who he is and he can change everything. Paul would write, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God to salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And you know what? That's why we sing about amazing grace and not, that's okay, grace. I mean, that's why we talk about amazing love as opposed to like, I feel moderately loved. If you, those of us who've come to Christ, we know the difference. We know who we were. We know how indifferent we were. We know that we were enemies of God. We know that we were blind to the things of God, but God in his grace, through his word, he illuminated our hearts, and through the gospel, we go from people who are dead to now alive. We are going from people who saw Jesus as just a caricature, some religious idea, to seeing him as the savior. It went from black and white to technicolor. And we went, our life was going this way, and though we still mess up and we fall, our life is now going this way. And I want you to know something, that can be you. Trust in Christ. He changes everything. And for believers... Sometimes you just need to say, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song will ever be, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We're willing to say, I'm a worm. You know why? Because he is so great, and he saved us out of such a dark pit, and we're into such a great light now. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pray, and we're going to sing, and we're going to do the offering, and we're just going to rejoice because our grace is not ho-hum. It's amazing. Let's pray. God, you're good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you that it can save us and change us. Thank you that there is hope for anybody in this room who is far away. Come to Christ's all. That's the invitation. Come. Believe. See him as incomparably great and glorious and mighty and see him as the Savior. You don't have to remain where you are. There is new life. Thank you. Thank you, God, for this amazing grace. Thank you that you take dead people and make them alive. Thank you that you take mess-ups and make them your sons and daughters. Thank you that you don't leave us where we are, but you make us more like yourself. Thank you. God, may we respond in amazement and love and song. In Jesus' name, amen.